Samuel Battle is far from a household name in New York City, yet he holds a very important place in the Big Apple's history. Battle was the first African-American to join the NYPD. But the road to becoming a police officer was not an easy one for Battle, and even after he got on the force, the challenges continued. He had to contend with racist colleagues, death threats, and government corruption, along with criminals and gang members. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. A new book traces Samuel Battle's amazing journey. It's called One Righteous Man, Samuel Battle and the Shattering of the Color Line in New York. The author is New York Daily News editorial page editor Arthur Brown. Arthur joins us in the studio. Arthur, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Who was Samuel Battle? Well, Samuel Battle was New York's first African-American police officer. He broke the color line of the NYPD in 1911 and then had an absolutely fabulous and adventurous and very tough career in the NYPD and opened the door for thousands of African-Americans to follow him onto the force. Samuel Battle was not native to New York City. He came from the South. That's correct. Sam Battle was born in 1883 in New Bern, North Carolina, a small town on the coast. He was uh, from a very large family. He was his uh, father's uh, 14th child and his mother's 11th. And he came from, uh, as I said, a very, very large household and left there at the age of 16 on his own. He was an adventurous, rambunctious young guy who had great dreams of uh, coming north um, and making a better life. He was the son of slaves. He belonged to the first generation of African-Americans to be free. That's correct. His, both of his parents were former slaves. They were remarkable people in themselves. Uh, his father was um, a stonemason, an expert at bricks and masonry and, and building. And while a slave, he began to earn a living that way. And he earned enough money to buy his way out of slavery, which is a remarkable feat. His mother was the daughter of a slave master and a slave. She was light-skinned, had uh, long, silky hair. um, But in the uh, terrible mathematics of that age and for many years later, um, she was considered black simply because there uh, there was some portion of black heritage in her in her genetic makeup. But she was the family caregiver and the lover, and uh, no young man or adult man could love their mother more than Samuel Battle did. How much did the fact that, as we said, he belonged to the first generation of African Americans to be born free, how much did that have to do with his pursuits in life? How much did that play into his thinking? I think it was significant. I think that, uh, as I put it in the book, he was in that generation. He felt freer to, as a young kid to be a boy as opposed to, in quotes, a boy. So he was willing to stand up. And one of the traits that he showed from a very early age and he, that he carried through life was that he insisted on dignified treatment from everyone And he insisted on being able to meet everyone on an equal plane. And I think that came from at least partly his never having known slavery. Uh, His mother, he said, had never discussed 
her years in slavery and preferred not to look back on the bad times and just preferred to look ahead. And um, that is a trait that he also carried uh, for all of his life. Wasn't there an instance where he pretty much stood up against being whipped by a white man? There was. Um, he, he. This episode is related in the book. Now, if I could just uh, step back a little bit and tell you uh, how I know all of this about his childhood. If um, uh, As I began to do research for this book, it didn't seem possible that you could do a biography or write any significant story about somebody who was born in 1911 who died in 1966 and about which there was not that much written in the newspapers. But in the early uh, course of the research, I discovered uh, that in 1949, when Sam Battle left public life, he hired the poet Langston Hughes, the, uh, the glory poet of the Harlem Renaissance, to write his biography he knew, Sam Battle knew, that he had accomplished an enormous amount in his life. And he wanted and he, that story told. He did want it told. And he also knew that it was being forgotten, that time was going to pass and that nobody was going to remember what he did. So he connected with Langston Hughes. And the two of them spent three years uh, working on a biography that was never published. I discovered the manuscript. It was held by uh, Sam Battle's grandson. And because I found the manuscript, I was then able to reconstruct Sam Battle's life in a way that you could never have done without the partnership of Sam Battle and Langston Hughes. Now, to get back to your, your question about um, standing up to uh, a white man, the early parts of the book, uh, in the early parts of the book, Langston Hughes does this fabulous, terrific job of rendering what Sam Battle's life was like uh, in Sam Battle's words. It's magical. It's lyrical. It's just fantastic. And one of the episodes that Sam Battle relates is that he's walking down the street one day and a group of white boys uh, are playing marbles. And he's a, he's a kid who always wants to play, compete. And he tells the um, the group of white boys, I could beat you at marbles. And when he bends down to play, uh, they turn and they tell him, and I won't use the word, uh, no ends allowed to play here. Mm -hmm. At that, Sam Battle, who was a large kid, and all his life he was large. And um, from very birth, he was big and powerful. Over six feet, right? Yes. He was 6'2 when he was an adult and 240, and he was a, uh, a boxer. And talking about size, when he was born, he was 16 and a half pounds. So he, 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 was, he was a big physical kid. And uh, he hauls off and he hits the kid who uh, used the N-word. None of them will take him on. They're afraid of him. There's five of them. There's one of him. They won't fight. He leaves. The boy happens to be the son of a prominent judge. The boy tells uh, the father what had happened. Um, at first, um, the kids ask, what's your name? And he tells him John Brown. He very well knows who John Brown was that you know tried to lead the rebellion. They search out John Brown. There was a kid in the town named John Brown. It's clearly not Sam Battle. They figure it out, that who it was. At that, the judge asks Sam Battle's father, Thomas Battle, to bring him to the judge's house. And there's a confrontation there. 
And it's determined that the punishment will be that the judge or the son will whip Sam Battle for doing what he did. Sam Battle's father agrees to the punishment, but not Sam Battle. He turns to his father and says, no one else in the world will whip me but you. If you want to whip me, you can whip me. And his father did whip him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what Sam Battle said is, no matter how much pain there was, no matter how much it hurt, I would not cry. How old was Sam Battle when he got here to New York City? He would, well, he left the South at the age of 16 in 1899. He had a couple of years of vagabonding around Connecticut. And so he arrives in New York just after the turn of the 20th century. So he, he would have been, let's put it, 19, maybe 20, at about, at about that age. So what was the climate like for a young black man in New York City during that time? Well, um, New York at that point had a very small black population. It was about 60,000, which was just a small percentage of the city. There was not a um, uh, large black neighborhood yet formed. Um, There were pockets of African-Americans living here and there. The center of life, the center of black life, uh, was on um, West 53rd Street. And it was a place of high style. And there were, um, this is where all the the most successful African-Americans of the day lived and uh, went to restaurants and went to hotels. Sam Battle got to know them. But outside that area, there were virtually no opportunities for employment or education for African Americans in New York City. They uh, were limited to very menial jobs. There's a, uh, uh, a principal of, a, of an African American school who relates that he had a conversation with a student and said, what is it that you aspire to be? And the the uh, young student said, well, I could be a bellboy. And then what could you be? Well, then I could be the head bellboy. And then what, what could you be? Well, I could be the elevator boy. And every uh, job that the young man related was a boy. Mm-hmm. And that's what Sam Battle became. He became a houseboy for um, wealthy uh, white families. He'd learned how to, in the South, he had very deliberately in New Bern, North Carolina, learned how to serve uh, white families, um, how to how the the white families of New Bern, the, the upper crust society, would want their table set, would want their food served, and so he he learned that, figuring that it would come in handy when when he went north, and it did. That's where he got his first you know start uh, in employment in uh, in New York City. He also worked as what was called a red cap at Grand Central Depot, the precursor to Grand Central Terminal, right? That's correct. A man named Chief James Williams was a he too was the son of former slaves. He too had come from the south. Um, he was light-skinned and he got himself a job as a luggage porter there and then gained the trust of uh, the Stasis Master and others and began to um, uh, be the hiring agent, if you will, of um, for the porters. But he insisted on terrific service. He investigated everybody's background. He didn't want any failures. He wanted everything to go well, and he was a very well-disciplined person. And so he formed the um, a team or... 
a cadre of about 400 luggage porters. He also invented, he, he put a little uh, a piece of red flannel in their caps so people could see them, and that's how they, they got the name Red Caps, that we still call the people who hold that type of job today. And Sam Battle made a pretty good income doing that, didn't he? He did. He, he, uh, because he had a, uh, a big personality and because he was uh, interested in meeting and getting to know everyone, he became a favorite of the celebrities of the time who came through Grand Central. He carried Jack Johnson, the fighter's bags. He greeted Teddy Roosevelt, who he adored. He got to know the writers and the athletes and the stars of the day. Enrico Caruso, the opera tenor, um, introduced him to Italian-American food at a, at a restaurant he had in Greenwich Village. And so he made a decent living. You know, he, he was about $300 a month. That was considered pretty good, uh, particularly for an African-American. You're listening to Cityscape. I'm George Baldarki. Our guest today is New York Daily News editorial page editor Arthur Brown. He's here to talk about his new book on the first African-American to join the NYPD. It's called One Righteous Man, Samuel Battle and the Shattering of the Color Line in New York. What inspired him to want to join the New York City Police Department? Well, in the context of the time, we're looking at about 1909 or 1910 when he decides to do it. There is some activism going on among the city's black leadership, primarily ministers, some in a, a newspaper called the New York Age, which was long forgotten, but I believe was one of the great American newspapers of all time, f- calling on uh, African Americans to apply for the police position, and trying to get the first to integrate the force. They were ha- that's the background. It's also the, the time when the NAACP is forming. Sam Battle doesn't talk about really any of that in his, um, as he recounts why he decided to join the police force. His explanation was, was simply that he looked, he, he had gotten married, he had a son, he uh, expected to have a larger family, and he looked forward and he said, there is really no future in being a red cap. He'd, he'd actually wanted to be a lawyer when he left the South. It, he was frustrated in, in achieving that, of course, but he wanted something better. And he saw the cops and he saw this police job, thought he would be good at it, saw that many of the positions were held by uh, Irish immigrants, um, some of them just off the boat. And he said to himself, you know, I know New York City better than these people do. I know um, much more about America. I know much more about everything to do with um, this society than they do. Why can't I have that job? And he looked forward and said, it carries a pension. And that would be security, he felt, for himself, his wife, and family. And so he he cast it strictly in economic terms, his decision to, to join the police force. And it was difficult for him from the very beginning, right? Even from the physical examination to become a police officer. Yes. He uh, was legally entitled to take the civil service exam. There was a civil service exam school called the Delahanty Institute. That institute barred his admission, which was a significant uh, difficulty 
because in that day, the civil service test was much more knowledge-based than it is now. The candidates had to know the penal law, the housing law, the domestic law, all sorts of rules and regulations. It took great study. So first, Sam Battle had to learn all of that himself. He, after he worked as a red cap, he would come home, and he and his wife Florence would study and drill. He passed the test. What he discovers is that the police commissioner has the ability to skip a person here, skip a person there. He discovers that he's been skipped twice by the police commissioner for unexplained reasons. There is uh, activism then. There's some pushing um, by uh, the advocates. He's given a physical. At this point, the police surgeon examines him and, wouldn't you know it, discovers that Sam Battle, in his expert estimation, suffers from a disqualifying heart murmur, which clearly wasn't true. He was in unbelievably terrific physical condition. So he goes to his family physician, who happens to be black. That doctor says... A letter from me will be meaningless. It will only count if you get a white doctor to testify. So he did. Uh, They got a prominent white physician to write a letter that Sam Battle was in absolutely perfect physical condition. It was sent to the mayor. The mayor decided he had no choice. The police commissioner then had no choice, and he made his way onto the police force. So what was that swearing-in ceremony like when Sam Battle was officially sworn in as a New York City police officer? Well, as best as it can be reconstructed, there were several hundred candidates. He was the only African-American. The mayor was there. The police commissioner was there. There's, um, he draws notice. Um, he acts as if there's nothing unusual taking place. Uh, the police commissioner uh, mentions that uh, they are swearing in the first, uh, in their word of the day, Negro. And he has a private conversation telling Sam Battle, I'm glad you're on the force, but you, I think you'll, you'll be able to overcome the, quote, difficulties that you'll face, which was an unbelievable understatement of what he was about to undergo when he got onto the police force. He was shunned by his fellow officers and forced to sleep in an area that was separate from where everyone else was sleeping. When he showed up, for work the first day. There was a crowd outside the station house, which was on West 68th Street. It was known as a station house that had a particular animus toward African Americans, which may have been a deliberate place that the police department assigned him. The whites outside say, look, here comes the end cop. Uh, They're black supporters. Inside, the officers subject him to pure silence. And that continues for almost two years, except in the circumstances where the officers must talk to him. Now, this wasn't simply to express hostility. This was sabotage because every cop learns from every other cop. All the new cops need the tutorials from the cops on the street, how to make an arrest, how to follow the rules, um, how to take someone into custody, whatever the whatever, how to stand post. Sam Battle got none of that help. He was also, um, the threatening notes came home that he should leave the force. He found a note on his um, bed. In that time, there was no 911. There were no police cars. There were still horse-drawn wagons. So in the event that there were emergencies, 
police officers slept in dormitories in the station houses. They called it being on reserve. So he finds a note on his pillow with a bullet hole uh, in it that says, you know, if you don't get off the force, this is what will happen. Hmm. They also, early in his tenure, send a white woman to try to entrap him into a sexual liaison because they know that if it's reported that a black man, a black cop, had had sexual relations with a white woman, um, he would never survive on the police force. And finally, what you mentioned about the bed, Sam, the white officers decided that they just would not have him in their dormitory. So they moved his bed up to an upper floor of the station house into a room that was known as the flag loft because it was where the American flag was kept, and it kind of hung in that room. And Sam Battle would do two things there. One, he would lay on the bed and look at the flag and say to himself, you know, these these men are on the forest. Most of them are immigrants new to this country. I'm a native-born American. And he would look up at the flag and ask, why? Why are they doing this to me? The other thing that he did in that private dormitory was that he de- decided that he was going to study for the sergeant's exam. He, When he was alone, he would start to study. And his thinking was, you men who will not talk to me today, someday in the future you will take my orders. And, and he that did started, rise to sergeant. That started him on a very rocky road up to his first promotion to sergeant. Right. He served as sergeant. He was an aide to Mayor LaGuardia. He was also the parole commissioner here yeah, in New York so City. Yes, he, so he, be- he does eventually become a police sergeant. He becomes the first black police lieutenant. He becomes an aide to Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. He does become a, the city parole, a city parole commissioner, which was then an elevated uh, post. He's appointed by Mayor LaGuardia. And a little-known fact is that when Lou Gehrig, the great Yankee, got sick and left the, the team, LaGuardia appointed uh, Lou Gehrig to the parole commission, and he filled out that role until he died. And when he died, LaGuardia put battle into uh, Lou Gehrig's spot on the parole commission. Battle also, by that time, had become good friends with First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. He'd met her um, as a police, police lieutenant and developed a relationship. And many years later, she would write a forward to the, the book that um, was never published by, uh, his, in his partnership with Langston Hughes, um, a terrific summation of what Samuel Battle's life was and asking people to recognize not only that it was the story of one man's courage, but that this was the story of a man fighting for the dignity of the entire race. How is it that that book was never published? Okay. At the time, in 1949, Langston Hughes is long past his glory years as the Harlem Renaissance poet. He is struggling to make a living. Uh, it's His career has been um, uh, a, a career of various types of writing, many dis- different types of writing, novels, poems, plays, um, but it's always been um, kind of catch-as-catch-can monetarily. At the time that Battle makes contact with Langston Hughes, Hughes needs money. 
So he accepts the $1,500 commission from Battle. He's not particularly interested in this. He still has much higher ambitions in terms of being a great writer than um, writing this uh, uh, ghost writing, if you will, this uh, biography. So they ha- they don't have the greatest relationship. It takes uh, several years for Battle to finally get the manuscript uh, done with Langston Hughes. And then... The product is 80,000 words, and there are places in it, as I said before, where Langston Hughes just makes magic out of Battle's memories. But the closer you come to the present, the weaker the story becomes. In the end, it, it is not a particularly compelling manuscript. When they submitted it to the publishers, it was um, quickly rejected. I believe that flawed as it was, if a publishing house had wanted to, a good editor could have worked with the two of them to turn that into a compelling narrative. But the larger issue that was fatal to that manuscript, I believe, was that the publishing houses of the day had absolutely no interest in marketing a book that featured a strong black hero who challenged the prevailing racism of the time including in the NYPD. So ultimately, it was the racism of the publishing industry that doomed that project. How much of the fact that Samuel Battle saved a white officer's life during a riot have to do with his success within the department? That was a pivotal moment. And what happened was that in 1919 was um, what's known as America's Red Summer. It was the period of the worst outbreak of white-on-black rioting across America in cities across America. New York was on edge. There was a tradition uh, that men who wore straw hats were required or expected to stop wearing them after September 15th. On September 15th, late at night, a white police officer in Harlem has changed and is walking to the police station. He's wearing a straw hat. It's hot. There are people on the street. Some young African-Americans see him with the hat. And this happens all over, this happens all over the city. It's not just young black, you know, uh, teenagers doing this. It's white teenagers doing this as well. They grab the hat. The cop um, is not happy with this. It generates into a uh, terrible event in which the cop shoots dead a man on the street. Um, At that, there is the start of black rioting in Harlem. And the uh, mob sets upon the police officer, and they have him down. They're kicking, they're pummeling him, and it's uh, pretty clear that he's not going to survive without help. Battle happens to be in the neighborhood. He rushes there with his gun out and his nightstick. He he um, uh, pushes back the crowd and then stands over the uh, fallen police officer um, with his gun and the and the nightstick and protects him. Because he did that, the police force recognizes the white men of the police force finally say, well. Maybe it's okay that this black man who saved the white cop, maybe it's okay to admit him 
to the civil service school to study for the sergeant's exam. And so um, he did. He went to that um, uh, academy, and that was important for him to be able to um, to continue on what is, you know, a, a still a very very difficult journey to become a sergeant and to become a lieutenant. It's interesting to think that Samuel Battle was a tourist attraction in New York City. Tour buses would literally drive past his beat and say, "Hey, look, there's the colored police officer." That's correct. He was put on display, and uh, early in his career. And this was on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. He was in, a, his first assignment was in a very well-to-do neighborhood. And the tour buses would come by and people would gawk at him. He accepted all that. He swallowed a lot. There is a Harlem intersection named after Samuel Battle, right? Yes, it's Lenox Avenue and 135th Street. And that is the scene, that's the site where um, the... Uh, he saves the white officer's life. The book is One Righteous Man, Samuel Battle and the Shattering of the Color Line in New York. Arthur Brown, thank you so much for coming in. And thank you for having me. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates since New York City tidbits. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.